We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. The following sermon was given at St. Matthias Family Church, where Philip Jensen was Senior Minister. Been reminded of the necessity of making our annual message. But sometime in the next little while, while I speak, those who have forgotten daylight saving will emerge at the back door and wonder why the sermon is so early in the service today. We won't laugh at them then because we'll laugh now and get that out of our system so that they won't get too embarrassed and refrain from coming in. Last year one of our church wardens listened to the sermon in the baby crying room because when he got to the door he realised his folly but his pride got the better of him and so he listened elsewhere. I won't mention which one of the three but uh, that's what's going to happen, I presume, in a little while. And our self-righteousness is such that we can feel superior. Those who come in two hours' time are those who put their clocks back instead of forwards. Well, in a town in northern Greece called Thessalonica, in the middle of the first century, Paul, the converted persecutor of Christians, the apostle to the Gentiles, as he was becoming, and he became, came to preach the gospel. For at least three Sabbath days he was in the synagogue preaching and arguing about the gospel of Jesus Christ to all who were there. And his message was that the Messiah, the Christ, would have to suffer, die and rise again. And that the one who fulfilled the expectations of the suffering, dying, rising Messiah was none other than Jesus, who had just died and risen again. The response was mixed. In this second European city to have the gospel preached in it. Some of the Jews, some of the men, some of the women of rank were converted some of the Gentiles who were God-fearers and came to the synagogue and listened in and associated with the Jewish community, they too were converted. But others, in hostility, rejected the message. They stirred up trouble in the city, brought the charges against Paul's hosts and uh, effectively forced Paul, eviction, from Thessalonica. He went on to Berea where they chased him there and then on to Athens and on to Corinth. So far what I've done in those few minutes is just to give you a fairly straightforward account of what happened in Thessalonica. But what really happened? I mean, behind the scenes, in depth reporting, what really was taking place? There's a series of television commercials on at the moment, I think they're about the news itself, where you see something dreadful happening in the street, a man racing to, to, to a car and pulling a woman out of a car as if he's going to bash her up, and another man chasing someone down an alley, and then you get an action replay of what has happened on a much wider lens, and you see that the reason he's pulling the woman out of the car is not to bash her up, but because her car is a is a light with fire and it's about to explode and he's actually rescuing her and the reason why he's 
chasing the man down the dark alley is so as to rescue him from some kind of trouble. And of course, if you watch that television station, you get the real scene, the, the total scene, and you see things in their right full context. And seeing them in their right full context, you understand what is taking place. Well, it's a little bit like that. In Thessalonica, Paul went and preached and argued and some people were persuaded and converted, others weren't and they caused trouble for him and he was evicted from the city. That's what happened. But what really took place in Thessalonica? If we could have the wider lens action replay, what was it that was taking place? In writing to them later in this epistle we're looking at now, this letter we're looking at now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see what was really taking place according to Paul. In that little section, verses 13 to 17, that Julie read for us a few minutes ago, in fact, just in 13 to 14, we'll be looking at it today, we see what was really taking place. For from the beginning of the world, and before the beginning, God was in taking action. God had a purpose. And his action and his purpose had to do with the end of the world. From verse 13 to 14, we have one of those little bits of the Bible where you get an enormous sweep from before the creation till the, the return of the Lord on the judgment day. We always ought to thank God, he says. But for you, brothers, loved of God, because from the beginning... God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth and he called you to this through our gospel so that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The beginning for Paul is not just the beginning of the Christian era, it's the beginning of all things. Before the foundation of the world God chose us, he says to the Ephesians and that's what he'll have in mind here too I presume, that from the very beginning in the beginning God created the world, from beginning, from right back then, before the beginning of everything, God had taken action for these people. And the action he takes is the one that they might share the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the very end point of all history. For when Jesus Christ returns, then on that day, we're told, he comes, chapter 1, verse 10 of the same epistle, he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marvelled at those who believe. When will we share the glory of Christ but when the Christ returns at the last day in the great time of judgment? That is when we'll share the glory of Christ. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians and saying what was taking place was the action of God. And that is why when we think of you, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, because it was God's action that was taking place, his action of choosing the Thessalonians for his purpose. He planned their salvation from before the creation. He planned that they would share the glory of Christ at the end time. That's his purpose. When Christ comes to be glorified in them, and he in them and they in him. That's the purpose of God from before the beginning. But this plan of God, this plan takes effect in history. It's part of the whole process of history. We are saved by the death of his son. 
the one who lived and died at a particular place at a particular time in history. And the effect of his son's death came to the Thessalonians at this particular time and at this particular way with this particular apostle preaching. The effect of the son's death came to the Thessalonians through a man but through God's work. God's work which is twofold by the sanctifying work of the Spirit and by believing in the truth. I say twofold because they really come to the same. He chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. The Holy Spirit had set them apart for God. So the essence of the idea of sanctifying is the idea of being set apart for special purpose. Uh, consecrated, if you like, is a, might be a word that grasps it for us. It's set apart for God is the purpose. How are they set apart by God, for God? Well, by the work of the Holy Spirit. For when the gospel came to them, it didn't come just as words, but it came with the Spirit, to the power of God and with full conviction. And Paul thanks God that when they heard it, they didn't hear it just as the words of men, but as it really is the words of God. Because when they heard the preaching of the apostle, God's spirit was poured out upon them so that they heard and received the message as truth. And so the second part of the process in history is belief in the truth. God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the spirit and through belief in the truth. As the gospel is preached, truth is being preached, but the truth is rarely met with belief because we prefer the lie, we prefer deceit. We who are the children of the devil believe as our Father teaches us to believe in lies. He is the liar and the father of all lies. The great lie, of course, that many of us believe in is that God really doesn't matter in our lives. That while God is there, he is not in control. While God is there, we are not answerable to him. While God is there, we do not have to live our lives for him. We acknowledge he is there, but deny him in the way in which we live. That is the lie that most of us live by. So that when the truth is preached, we do not believe the truth. But thanks to the sanctifying work of the Spirit, when the truth was preached to the Thessalonians, they came to believe in the truth. For he opened their eyes to see the truth of the gospel, that this wasn't just another message from another man peddling some new idea. This was the word of God. That is, God brings the people he chose for glory to that place by pouring his spirit into them that when they hear the truth they will believe it and be saved. And so the trigger mechanism in the supernatural work of God, the trigger mechanism is the gospel, is the preaching of the truth. As we see it in verse 14, he called you to this through our gospel. That's how you came to belief in the truth. That is when and how the Spirit worked in your hearts and minds. It is the gospel preached 
that God uses to call people to the salvation that he has prepared for them before the foundation of the world. Gospel preaching is his method for calling out his chosen people, setting them aside by the Spirit for the glory of the age to share with Christ. So what really happened when Paul preached in Thessalonica? What really happened was that God was doing his eternal, miraculous work in calling out the people of his choice. If you stand there in the synagogue in Thessalonica and you watch this man speaking, you will see that what is taking place is a man preaching, a doctrine different to that which had been preached the previous week, a doctrine which was causing some trouble and dissension within the group a doctrine which really was leading some people to move on from synagogue, move on into a new faith, a doctrine which brought the Gentiles into a whole new perspective of being saved. What you could see was like that, a preacher, a troublesome, meddlesome preacher who divided the community and then got chased away. But if you believe, then what you really is happening was God was doing his eternal work at that moment in the lives of those people. But you have to have a wide lens to take that in. You have to take your eyes off the Apostle Paul and look to greater things than just what is happening in a particular preacher You've got to believe that there is a God who before the foundation of the world had a plan for individuals and that that plan was that they would share in the glory of Christ. You've got to believe in the work of the Spirit changing and transforming the lives of people. You've got to believe that the word of God is powerful. You have to believe a lot of things before you would ever see what was really happening. And what was happening there in Thessalonica was happening everywhere. It wasn't unique. It wasn't that God's plan for all eternity was just for the Thessalonians. As Paul travelled, it was like a triumphant procession of a conquering general. He went on to Berea and the Bereans listened and weighed up what he was saying by the word of God. He went on to Athens and preached there and some again believed. He went on to Corinth and again a church was founded as people came to believe the teaching that he gave in that city. He went on from place to place and hearts were conquered and as they were conquered so they honoured the message. They honoured it by their lives being changed. That's Paul's prayer in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 1. Finally brothers pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured just as it was with you. For when people hear the message and believe the message and change their lives in accordance with the message they honour the message. The message has conquered them and triumphs over them. But as the message goes out, it gives off and its messengers give off a fragrance or really two fragrances, two smells. For those who are being saved, it's the sweet smell of life, the smell of Christ. But for those who are being condemned, it's the stench of death. See, conquerors were like that. Having made some great conquest in a far-flung part of the empire, 
the general would march back some prize examples of his conquest. If you're on the Roman side, you cheered, for it was great to see their continuing growth in wealth and imperial power. And if you're not on the Roman side, you'd gnash your teeth and mutter under your breath as you saw the growing strength and imperial power of your oppressors. The same procession was for one group something to cheer about and for another group something to jeer about. So it was with the gospel. For as the gospel was preached, it divided like the synagogue in Thessalonica. For those who were saved, it was the best thing that had ever happened to them. It was the greatest moment of their life because God's eternal purpose for them came to life. And that man who brought it was the most wonderful messenger they had ever had. But for those who were not saved, why the message was appalling. It was a destruction of everything they held dear. It was the division of their synagogue. It was the death knell of their faith and culture. It was was a matter of enmity and hatred. But this conquest of the gospel that was taking place was not a human conquest. It wasn't that Paul was the greatest preacher of the first century and by the power of his rhetoric was able to sway millions. It wasn't a human conquest. It was a non-human one. For the gospel itself was foolishness. It was folly, says Paul, to those who are perishing. They hear this message about the crucified one and the resurrection and they laugh and they scoff and they scorn. So stupid to think a man's going to come back from the dead. So stupid to think that the end of the world is going to come and everyone's going to rise up like that. So silly to think that the execution of just one more Jew back there in Palestine could somehow affect me and my eternal state with God. It's so silly, it lacks any kind of philosophical or epistemological sophistication. It really is so stupid, so inane. Stories about a man who was killed. And to others? Well, to others it was a terrible stumbling block, believing in the message of a cross. Give me a miracle or two. Do something that really demonstrates your power. Do something that will change the world immediately before me. Or ask me to do something. Give me the rules, give me the regulations, ask me to live up to a new standard, call upon me to try harder or something. But to believe in the death of another man on my behalf, it doesn't ask me to do anything. And it doesn't show me anything that's very spectacular. For many it was a stumbling block. See, the gospel doesn't persuade people by its cleverness. It doesn't persuade people by its demonstrations of power. It's the Holy Spirit who persuades people through the preaching of the cross. And he persuades them to do what is so unnatural to us, just to believe the truth. And what happened in first century Greece happens now in 20th century Australia, in Sydney. For God's plan was not just for the first century, God's plan was from the beginning for the end time. 
God's plan covers every phase of history and time that we have. And God's method of bringing his chosen to glory has not changed. It's still today the same as it was then, but as the gospel is preached, the sanctifying work of the Spirit takes place, bringing people to believe in the truth. For the gospel is the power of God to salvation, and gospel preaching is God's method to bring about his plans. So then what is our task? We who believe the gospel well, we must be just engaged in the work of the gospel. That's what we must be because it's all the same. It continues year in, year out, nation after nation, that the word of God goes on and is honoured by people as they turn back to acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Saviour and Lord. And as it happens, so occurs division and hostility. Thank you for praying, those of you who were with us a couple of weeks ago and I mentioned a, a, a friend called, whom I called Anastasia. Thank you for praying for her. She continues in faith and having been through another real crisis in the last week has continued to endure even stronger in faith and in greater confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ in the persecution and the hostility that flow from believing in the truth the persecution and hostility that flow within her family for having come to believe in the truth. What's our task? It's prayer. That's the first part of it, prayer. Because who is equal to such a task of preaching the gospel, of being faced with opposition, of seeing the great work of God transforming lives? Who could ever do such a thing? It's God who does it. He does it through us and therefore we may must pray to God that he would open up opportunities and that he would see his word spread and conquer. As Paul says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured. Prayer is of the essence of this work because it is a supernatural work. We must pray for our friends, for our neighbours, for our workmates, whoever it may be, we must pray that God would open up their hearts and minds to believe the truth. For it is only as God does that that they will come to this saving work. And you've got a list of the people that you are consistently and readily, regularly praying for. Make a list. Make a list of those people that and stick it in your Bible as your bookmark so that every time your Bible's opening up you remember the five or six people that are really on the top of your list of people that you want to have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and keep praying that God would do the work. And pray for the evangelists, for those who will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's very important that we keep praying for our friends overseas who are involved in this work, for the Spencers in Tanzania, for Jenny and, uh, and Adolfo in La Plata, Peter and Terry in Resistentia, they're members of our congregation who are elsewhere seeking to bring this gospel of salvation to people. For Stephen and Veronica as they go to Uruguay in the next few months, and for Norm and Janelle as they go to Kenya, pray for those who are in that work. But it's not only those overseas. Tim and Rosemary Thorburn out in Western Australia in Walcatcham and 
Jerry and Luciano Ricci, who are just over in Haberfield, seeking to reach the Italian community with the gospel, or Rocco and, and Sue Scarcella out at Liverpool, reaching the Italian community. Pray for those who are involved in the preaching of the gospel. For people like John Chapman, Ian Powell, who are, who are particularly set aside for evangelism itself, not even just for the teaching of God's word, but the teaching of the gospel message itself and the calling of people to salvation. They particularly need our prayerful support because it is only as God blesses their endeavours that anything is going to happen for the salvation of mankind. But of course, we too are caught up in evangelism. We, we must pray for ourselves in this regard. Ourselves as a, as a group and as a community and the staff on our church and our church as a congregation and the other churches associated with us at the University Church or the Greek Bible Fellowship, the focus group. Pray for the work of the evangelism that our church does. Joshua Ng's having a marvellous time of great blessing amongst overseas students at the University of New South Wales. A recent report published by the University of New South Wales a year or two ago saw that 41% of the overseas students on our campus profess to be Christians, actively involved in Christianity. I, I don't think there's any other part of Australian community that has 40% professing such faith. And the ministry of Joshua was, is, is a marvellous and important ministry and Robert and, and uh, Sue Driscoll who were engaged down there on Sunday mornings with them as well very important that we do it. Uh, Cole can correct me and, and fix up the figures for us. We, we're not giving out statistics and figures about our meetings called the meeting, but if I remember correctly, about a quarter of the follow-up that we do is amongst overseas students. It's something bigger like that, isn't it? That, that the people that Joshua wound up responsible for was about five or six times more than any other staff member. There is a great work of evangelism taking place and God is really touching the hearts of overseas students here in Sydney at the moment. And keep praying for it because it's got to be that supernatural work. But pray for our own selves too, for our husbands, for our wives, for each other, for our children in their school context and situations. For they are in the forefront of meeting up with the members of the community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray for each other and for ourselves because none of us can preach the gospel to anybody else. None of us can do the work of transforming and changing somebody. None of us can lift somebody from hell and place them into heaven. None of us can do that, but God, through us, does do it. It is God's supernatural work that he chooses to use frail vessels like you and I to bring about. Well, we must pray for each other, mustn't we? And for ourselves that God would be so kind as to use us. And therefore our task is not only prayer, but preaching to telling our friends, our neighbours, our relatives, our work associates, to inviting them to hear the word of God, to lending them a book or a tape, to offering to share the truths of the Bible with them, to just bring them to meetings and to take opportunities of introducing them to other Christian friends, but to reach out to our community. But to do so is always tough, isn't it? Why is it tough to invite people to come? I mean, if you belong to a squash club or a golf club, it's no great strain to invite someone to come along and play with you. If you're going off to a 
party or having a New Year's Eve party, it's no great difficulty to invite your neighbours and friends to come in and share with you. Why is it so tough to invite people to share in the truths of the gospel? Well, because it's so important. It's also because there are two smells that are given out. One of life and the other of death. But you know and I know that opposition and rejection and hostility is just as likely as acceptance and gladness and warmth. And therefore it's very tough. And for some of you say, well, well, it's all right for you, Philip. You're a robust, hard kind of personality that can cope with those kinds of rejections and I'm sorry you don't know me better. I'm shy and diffident just like you are and semi-terrified of being rejected like everybody else. What makes you think I'm any different to you? No, we all go through the sweaty palms, perspiry palms, very ladies. Well, ladies just glow, don't they? The glowing palms. We all go through that dryness of mouth. We all go through that palpitation of the heart as we hear the subject of Christianity coming up in the context of a casual conversation we try and think very hard and you know and you know you're going to goof off and say it the wrong way and you know you'll get it all back to front and, and afterwards you'll be we all go through that but we mustn't make Gehazi's mistake not sure that his name was Gehazi because after the incident with Naaman never sure whether Gehazi got the sack or not or whether this was the particular incident that took place before the Naaman event anyway but call him Gehazi because otherwise we've got no name for the man. He's Elisha's servant. You see, he made a terrible mistake as he went out one morning to pick up the milk bottles at the doorstep. He looks up and there all around about, everywhere, is the Aramean army, the Syrian army. They have the whole city surrounded. And they've surrounded the whole city in order to pick up one man. They've sent an army after one man, his boss. That is on the semi-terrifying state of existence, isn't it? We have an army that's come for you. Drop the milk bottles, race inside, fear, anxiety. Elisha, can you see what is there? Why was he afraid? Well, because he saw what was happening. Why wasn't Elisha afraid? Because he saw what was really happening. Elisha wasn't afraid because he could see the Lord's army. And so he prayed, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And when the servant Gehazi's eyes were opened, he saw the hills were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Our fear, our anxiety is a bit like Gehazi's, isn't it? We look at what is happening. We look at our frail, feeble attempts to share the great news of Jesus Christ with people. We look at our bumbling words. We look at our, our friends' rejection of us as well as our message. We look at the ridicule and scorn we get on the media or in the newspapers. We look at... And we are fearful. Instead of what we really should be doing is looking at God at work. Wonder of wonder at work in and through us. And the foolishness of what we say. But when we remember that God is with us, well then, my friends, who can be against us? 
So let us pray that the word of God may speed on, spread rapidly, and be honoured amongst others, just as it has been amongst us. Let's pray. We do thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you call us to yourself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the great work of your Holy Spirit in our lives and praise you, Father, that you so cared for us. We do pray, Father, that you would uphold and strengthen those who are engaged in the preaching of your gospel today. Give them strength, Father, to continue to faithfully proclaim that which is so foolish to our generation that which causes such stumbling to people, the cross of Jesus. Help them to keep their faith in you and your word, knowing it to be the power of God for salvation. Help them in the face of opposition, Father, not to be put aside but to be strengthened by you. We pray, Father, for those who are labouring overseas, for Howard and Tricia and Jenny and Adolfo, for Peter and Terry. We pray that this day you would particularly watch over them and help them as they seek to teach others about the Lord Jesus. We pray, Father, for ourselves that you would give us boldness and confidence and courage to speak the word, to be able to have the answer to give to people. Help us, Father, to be so prepared by your Spirit. We pray, Father, for our friends, for our friends at work, at home, our family, our cousins. We pray that your Spirit would be poured upon them, Father, that hearing your word they may come to life and praise you. We beg, Father, that you would have mercy on our nation, we thank you, Father, for the work of those who preach the gospel here, for the work amongst so many of the different ethnic groups of our community, for the Ricci's and the Scarcellas and their work amongst the Italians, for Archie and John Woodhouse and, uh, and Zach Barron and their work amongst the Greek community, for Joshua Ng and the work amongst the overseas students on our campus. We, we praise you for these enormous privileges and opportunities we have we pray for those who are set aside specially for that work of evangelism like Ian Powell and John Chapman that you would strengthen their hearts and minds and keep them faithful in the task they're undertaking. We pray for ourselves, Father, that you would help us to have our courage in you and to see that what is at work is not just opposition, is not just a human endeavour, but is that supernatural work, that work of yours, in calling out your people to yourself through us that we may have the courage, Father, to continue to spread your word abroad. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.